You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 4. We're going to read together verses 15 through 19, and then we will pray. John, chapter 4, beginning of verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Let's pray together. Our Father, we worship before you and come before you this morning, humbly before your word, trusting that your spirit will guide us in our speaking, in our hearing, our understanding, and our obeying. We need this from you, and we confess that to you. We pray that your spirit would be our guide and our teacher, and that your word would be to us what it should be. Incline our hearts to your word and use your word to incline our hearts to you and match the need of our hearts with the truth of your word this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Speaking of Psalm 119, which is that big long psalm in the book of Psalms that has to do with God's word, God's commandments, God's precepts, uh, God's ordinances, God's law, John Wesley said this, He, that is the psalmist, cries out, Oh, what love have I to thy law! All the day long is my study in it. He sees daily in that divine mirror more and more of his own sinfulness. He sees more and more clearly that he is fully a sinner in all things, that neither his heart nor his ways are right before God, and that every moment sends him to Christ. Therefore, this is John Wesley, Therefore I cannot spare the law one moment, no more than I can spare Christ, seeing I now want it as much to keep me to Christ as I ever wanted it to bring me to him. Otherwise, this evil heart of unbelief would immediately depart from the living God. Indeed, each is continually sending me to the other, the law to Christ and Christ to the law. Now, if that sounds like that quotation belonged in last week's sermon, it's because it did, and it was actually there, but it was one that I had to edit out on the fly because of lack of time. So I figured I would throw that in at the beginning while I still have plenty of time because it kind of sums up what it is that we talked about last week, and that is the role of the law in evangelism and Jesus' use of the law with the woman at the well. I am convinced that it does us absolutely no good whatsoever to offer to somebody forgiveness of sins when they are not convinced that they need forgiveness of sins. Any more than it does a physician any good to offer to somebody a prescription for a drug when they are not at all convinced that they have no disease that needs a cure. If you walk into your doctor's office and you sit down and you're waiting for what seems like an eternity for him to finally come into the room, and he finally does, and he steps in, and he says, I'm going to give you a prescription for cholesterol medication. Where did that come from? Right out of the blue. Prescription for cholesterol medication. I'm healthy as a horse. I don't need cholesterol medication. I run every day. I walk every day. I bicycle. I do this. I watch my diet. I exercise. I'm doing everything that I can in order to stay healthy. Why do I need prescription for cholesterol medication? But then if the doctor sits down and says to you, and by the way, if he sends you out the door with a prescription for cholesterol medication, you're likely not going to get it. And you're likely not going to take it even if you do get it. 
But if the doctor takes the time to sit down with you and say, look, here's the blood work that we got back from the, from the lab. You see this number here? It's way too high. Here's where it should be in this range. But you can see you're off the charts high. And here's this other number, and this number is way too high. And this number is way too high. And this number is out of balance. It takes the time to show you that. And then he says to you, if you don't get your cholesterol under control, you're going to develop heart disease, you're going to have a heart attack, you're going to have a stroke, you're going to have to have your arteries rotor-rooted out or whatever it is that you need to do to those. You're going to start bleeding out of your eyeballs and your ears and your skin is going to turn crusty and your breath's going to smell like blue cheese and <laughs> everything horrible. And Everybody knows that the worst smell in the world is blue cheese. Everything is going to be horrible for you unless you take this prescription that I'm about to give you. You would take that prescription, you go right out of there down to the pharmacy, get that medication, and you would not miss a day. Why? Because you would realize that your life depends on taking that prescription. But unless the doctor sits down to convince you of the disease that you have and the need for the cure, you're not likely to appropriate the cure. That's what Jesus did with the woman at the well, and that's what the law does to us when we share Christ with others. The law convicts the sinner and shows the sinner they need forgiveness, they need life, and they cannot keep the righteous demands of God's law. And so then it convinces them that they need a cure. They need a Savior because they've been convinced of their sin. And so that's what Jesus did with the woman at the well. He opened up the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, he didn't say it in so many words, but he brought up the subject of her sin. He didn't need to quote the commandment. She was aware of it. He was aware of it. She knew of her sin. He knew that she knew of her sin. He didn't need to quote the commandment to her, but what he is doing is he is revealing her sin to her in these verses, revealing her sin to her to show her that she needed a Savior, she needed a cure, she needed life, and she needed forgiveness. But had Jesus not taken the time to do that, And had he simply said, you know what, what you really need is a better life, what you really need is me, she wouldn't have realized that she needed any of those things and she wouldn't have appropriated the cure. And the modern method of evangelism goes to the sinner and says, what you really need is Jesus to give you a better life, when that's not at all what Jesus has promised. And what you really need is Jesus to provide for you uh, happiness and to fix this problem and that problem and cure this for you and cure that for you. What we're really not doing is taking the law and using it to show the sinner that we can offer them the one thing that they need more desperately than anything else, and that is forgiveness of sins and righteousness in the sight of a holy God. But you have to use the law to convince them of the sin. Now, as a believer, our relationship to the law has changed. I was having this discussion with somebody last week after the service, and I think it was a profound observation. I want to share this with you. Before I came to Christ, my relationship to the law was was this. I was a guilty sinner condemned by the law. I looked at the law, and I said, Thou shalt not steal. I saw, Thou shalt not steal. I'm guilty. Thou shalt not disobey your parents. I'm really guilty. Thou shalt not uh, covet. Guilty as charged. Thou shalt not tell a lie. Guilty as charged. Thou shalt not murder. Uh, so that one I got, I got that one pinned, right? Until Jesus says, thou shalt not, if you hate your brother, then you're guilty of murder in your heart. <clears throat> guilty of that one too, I guess. Thou shalt not commit adultery. No problem, never been married. Unless you lust in your heart, then that's the same as committing adultery. <clears throat> Get that one too. Every teenage boy is guilty of that. Every last one of those commandments, guilty as charged. That's my rap sheet. And so my relationship to the law is one of standing under its righteous demands as condemned already and deserving the wrath of God. What should a good and just and holy God do with a guilty lawbreaker, a guilty rebel, who has rebelled against his righteous standards and rebelled against everything that is good? Not only have I not kept those commandments, but in my flesh I cannot keep those commandments. And in my flesh I fail miserably to keep those commandments. 
And I violated every aspect of God's righteous and holy law. So what should a righteous God do to me? He should send me to hell. That would be the right thing. The right thing would not be for the judge to simply dismiss my case or to kick me out of the courtroom or to forgive me. That wouldn't be a right thing to do. It would be a wrong thing to do because justice must be served. So the right and proper thing would be for the just judge to condemn me as guilty because I stand guilty before the law. But once I have seen my guilt in the law and realized I can't be justified by the Ten Commandments, that is, I can't be acquitted of my guilt, I may have, I may be able to say, okay, from this point forward, I'm going to clean things up a bit. If you say, well, maybe that would help me out. If from this day forward, I will do my best to not violate those commandments. Well, that might be good if it were possible from this day forward for me to not violate those commandments, but I still have a rap sheet I have to deal with, right? I mean, that ant might solve my problem from today onward, but what about my past? If you stood before a judge and you said, yeah, judge, I've murdered, I've raped, I've stolen, I've lied, I've committed perjury, I did all of these things, but I, I give you my word, from this day forward, from this day forward, I'm going to be a model citizen. The judge would say, you ought to be a model citizen, that's your duty. But you still have a rap sheet, you still have crimes that need to be punished. So I stand before the law condemned, but having been to the law to be condemned and seen my condemnation and my wrath in the eyes of a holy God, I then have come to Christ and realized, ah, I can be forgiven, I can be justified, not because I keep the law, I'm a lawbreaker, but because somebody else kept the law on my behalf and somebody else was punished for my crimes. And he offers to me his righteousness so that he takes my sins upon him and he gives me his righteousness in return so that I can be justified in the eyes of God that is declared righteous and God can be a righteous judge because my crimes have been punished and he can acquit me and dismiss me on the day of judgment. But now having come to Christ, my relationship with the law is not one where I stand condemned. I'm not condemned anymore. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now I am righteous in the sight of God. So now what role does the law play for me as a believer? Now, in terms of my relationship to the law as a believer, I look at the law and it reminds me constantly of what it is that drove me to Christ to begin with. And I see there the handwriting of requirements that was against me that has been taken away and I continually turn to the Lord in thankfulness and gratitude that he took my punishment and delivered me from the curse of the law having become a curse for me. So my relationship to the law now has changed. And in that quote that I started with from John Wesley, John Wesley says, I cannot do away with the law for one day because, he says, I now need the law as much to keep me to Christ as I ever needed it to send me to Christ. So Christ sends me to the law and the law sends me to Christ. While I am at Christ, I look back at the law and I say, "Why? that is what I was guilty of. That is the righteous requirements. That's why I need Jesus. Could I ever turn my back on him and betray him and walk away and leave and become an apostate? I could never do that. Why? Because the law keeps me at Christ. Else I would forget what it is for which I have been forgiven, and I would begin to wander away. My wicked heart would begin to wander away. But the law keeps me pinned to my salvation from the wrath of God that my violation of the law earned me. And then when I turn back to the law, stand at Christ, and I cling to him. And having clung to him, I glance over at the law, and it reminds me again of why it is that I'm clinging to the Savior. Well, what Jesus did in John chapter 4 was begin to open up the law to this woman at Samaria. And he said to her, go get your husband. Now she had said to him, sir, give me this drink, this living water that you're talking about, in order that I may not have to come back here to draw every day, and I'll never have to thirst again. I told you last week, I think she's somewhat sarcastic in this. She's sort of flippant. Um, 
she makes this request to Jesus. Sure, give me the water. Wouldn't that be great if you could supply water so that I would never thirst again? That would be great. Give it to me, and then I will never thirst. I'll never have to come back here. Chuckle, chuckle, ha, ha. Go get your husband. Whoa. All of a sudden, things have changed, right? Now, look at her response in verse 20. Sorry, not verse 20. We're not even close to being there yet. Verse 15. Uh, verse 17. I have, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Now, when Jesus requested or told her to go get her husband, it's not because he was ignorant that she didn't have a husband or that she was living with a man and that she had had five husbands. Jesus knew all of that. That's not an indication of his ignorance of her marital history or her moral failings. What Jesus is doing is he is setting her up to demonstrate to her his complete omniscience of exactly everything that she's been involved in. Go get your husband. And the woman says to him, Sir, I have no husband. Now, is that a true statement or a false statement? True statement or false statement? I have no husband. It's a true statement, isn't it? It's a true statement as far as it goes. But does it go far enough? doesn't go far enough. Technically, she could say, I have no husband. Well, that's true. You have no husband. You do have a man, but you don't have a husband. So that was a true statement, even though it was partially true. It was a true statement that was really intended to deceive and, I think, skirt the issue and get off of this subject. Do you notice, and this, I didn't notice this in the text until it was pointed out to me in a commentary that I was reading, but do you notice how quiet the woman has become so suddenly? I have no husband. This is kind of obvious when you begin to compare, sort of look at it in the context of this whole conversation that's been going on. Up until this point, the woman has been very talkative. In verse 9, in the Greek, she uses 11 words. In verses 11 and 12, 42 words. In verse 15, 13 words. Here when Jesus says, go get your husband, three words. I have no husband. Awkward silence. Let's change the subject, shall we? I have no husband. Do you think this woman wants this to be brought up? I don't think she wants this to be brought up. But she knows the more she talks about the subject, the more she is going to reveal. It is amazing when you start to talk to a sinner about their sin, you start going through the commandments and the law with them to show them their sin and to convict them and so that they might, with the rest of the world, stand guilty before God. It is amazing how quiet they get, how quickly. They go from talkative about the weather, sports, and everything under the sun to being very quiet. That's the one thing they do not want to talk about because the conscience is bearing witness with what you're saying and the law of God to show them that they're guilty, and a sinner will try and change the subject, get off of it, get you on a rabbit trail, doesn't want to talk about it, give you short answers, and become very quiet. And that's exactly what this woman is doing. Go get your husband. I have no husband. And I don't want to talk about it. Nothing else to say. There is a note of wisdom or there is a... There is sort of an element of wisdom in in her response in being quiet in that she knows the more I say about this subject, if I try and explain it, the more it's going to reveal and the truth will eventually come out if I try and sort of put up any rabbit trails or give more information. And I think she's trying to avoid the subject and to avoid discussing the subject. And in the fewest words possible, she's trying to get him off of this topic and give him an answer without giving him too many details and then just hope that the subject of the conversation moves on after that. That's what I think that she is getting at. She doesn't want to discuss this. If she did, she would say, you know, funny you should bring that up. Funny you should mention, go get your husband. I've had five, and I don't know which one you want me to get. I could go get Joe, or Mike, or Pat, or Levi, or Joseph. Which one of those five? In fact, I'm living in fornication right now with a man, an immoral relationship. I could go get him if you would like. She doesn't say that. Why not? She doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want to talk about it. Here's the element of wisdom. Proverbs 10 Verse 19 says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. Talk, 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 and eventually you're going to get yourself into trouble. That's the principle. 
but he who restrains his lips is wise. And she knows the more I say, the more I reveal. So say as little as possible. I learned this very important lesson this last Christmas. I bought Deidre a Christmas present. Now, she thinks that I have some subconscious twisted um, need, psychologically, that I'm not even aware of, to reveal to her what her Christmas presents are. I don't have that need. I don't know what kind of weird psychoanalysis that is, but it's not true. So, But what I do try and do is, because she figures it out every year, I try and go through all of these crafty machinations to try and hide the gift. So I gear off in these rabbit trails, and I drop little hints along the way or little little statements here or there that are intended to kind of, deceive would be the wrong word, but it's, that's the effect, to get her off of the, the trail so that she's not suspecting what it is. She doesn't know what it is. So I have it delivered to somebody else's house. I'll talk about, maybe I'll start asking her questions on a certain subject. What I have realized is that the more you try and divert attention and put up smoke screens, the more likely you are to reveal it. So this next Christmas, I'm going to do the woman at the well policy with the Christmas presents. You have no Christmas present. And that is going to be all the information that I reveal. Because I have found that the more you talk, the more you reveal. Even if you try and try and get them off of the trail. She thinks I'm some twisted weirdo who wants her to know she's a bloodhound. And she can't give it up, so she figures out what it is. So this year, you have no Christmas present, which technically would be true because she won't have it until she has it. So it would be like the woman at the well. It would be a truthful statement as far as it goes, but that's all the information she's going to get. That's what the woman at the well is doing with Jesus. I have no husband. Now, can we just get on a different subject? Now, look at Jesus' reply to her. You have well said you have no husband. Now, what he's saying is what you've said is true as far as it goes. That's a truthful statement, technically speaking. It's a truthful statement. You have no husband. Now, you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your own. I know you didn't come here expecting this, but let me give you a little, a quick grammar lesson. Greek and English are different languages. In the Greek language, word order doesn't determine meaning. In the English language, word order determines meaning. I say Bob hit the ball, or the ball hit Bob. There's two different meanings to the same words, right? Just a different order. Because in English, the word order of our sentence conveys meaning. In Greek, it's not so. You determine the meaning of the word, or the, the case of the word, or the place of the word, the meaning of a sentence, depending upon the form of the words that are used. So Jesus quotes the woman. He says, you've well said, I have no husband. He quotes back to her the same words that she uses. But he changes the order of the words in a very significant way. Because in Greek, when you change the order of words, you do so for the purpose of emphasis. You put words in certain positions in order to emphasize the thoughts or the clauses or the words themselves. That's what Jesus is doing here. When she says, I have no husband, she basically says the words in that order, I have no husband. When Jesus quotes it back to her, it's changed ever so slightly. Jesus says to her, you've well said, husband, I have not. Now, do you see the difference there? He's emphasizing husband. It's true that a husband you do not have. Then he emphasizes another word, the very next phrase, the word at the very beginning, penta, five. Five husbands you have had. Oh, that hurts, right? I've had no husband. You're right. Husband, husband, you don't have. Five. Five you have had. And the one that you now have is not your husband. Now what that is intended to do is not only agree with her, but to point out to her his piercing omniscience that he knew, he knew 
I believe not only how many husbands she had had, but I believe that he knew the names and the identities of all of the men. This is the omniscient son of God who knew her moral history, he knew her marital history, and he is pointing out pointing that out to her. Now, it is highly unlikely that this woman had been widowed five times. Widowed once? All right. Widowed twice? Possible? Do you know anybody has been widowed three times? Okay, a couple hands went up. Four times? Know anybody has been widowed five times? If you're the fifth guy, you start looking at your meals a little more closely. <laughs> start thinking to yourself, what? There's bad history here. Now, I don't believe this woman had been widowed five times. I believe this woman had had five men, five husbands. Why would I say that? Because Jesus brings it up. It's not sin to remarry after you've been widowed. It's not sin to remarry after the death of a spouse. That's not a sin. And if she had been remarried five times after five different spouses, none of that was sinful. The death the death ends the marriage relationship. It's over after that. The woman would have been free to remarry. But here she is in a position where she's had five husbands, and they haven't all been widowed. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't even have mentioned that. He would have just said, look, I know your moral history. Right now you're living with a man. You shouldn't be. You're living with a man who's not your husband. But he mentions the fact she had five husbands because all five of those men, had like, she had likely been divorced by all five of them. And it's possible that all five of those men had been had and divorced because of her immorality. And the way the Lord phrases this to this woman, you are, if well said, husband I do not have, five husbands you have had, and the one that you now have is not your own. J.C. Ryle observes the way the Lord phrases that to her, it opens up for us the implication that the last husband, man number five, whoever he was, man number five had justly divorced her on behalf of her because the reason of this man that she was now living with. In other words, the man that she was now living with, she had begun an adulterous relationship with that had ended up causing the divorce from man number five. That seems to be the implication. We cannot, we cannot avoid or um, deny saying that the man that she was currently living with very well could have been, very well could have been the reason for her fifth divorce. But Jesus knew all of that. His omniscience. You remember back in chapter 2, verse 23 and 25? The end of chapter 2 when it says, Jesus did not need for anybody to testify to him about men. Why? Because he knew what was in men. He knew what was in men. He didn't need anybody to prime him to go into this interview with the woman to say, look, what you need to understand is she's been married five times, been divorced five times, she's living with a guy that's not her own husband. Jesus didn't need that because he knew that. And he had supernatural omniscience of this woman and her marital relationships, her moral failings, and her moral life. And he is, in these words showing her her just condemnation before the law of God for living as she had. Now, just on an aside, sort of a side note, I want you to notice this statement by Jesus, five husbands you've had and the one whom you now have is not your husband. That statement is enough to show that living together does not constitute a marriage. Living together does not constitute a marriage. Why? Because then Jesus would have said, you've had six husbands. But he says you have five, and you're living with a man now who is not your husband. Because simply shacking up together does not constitute a marriage relationship. A marriage relationship is a covenant, a public covenant, that you cut before God and before others, and you exchange vows, and ultimately, uh, optimally, you consum- consummate that, with that vow-cutting ceremony with a physical union. But simply shacking up or fornicating or having relations outside of marriage does not constitute a marriage at all. A marriage is a covenant, something separate. 
This woman had been covenanted to five different men, and she was now simply fornicating with a man who was not her husband. Now, I understand, as, I, as I'm saying these words, there are people who are sitting here today who have been widowed. Uh, some have been divorced, some because their spouses were unfaithful or their spouses left them, some because they themselves were uh, involved in something they shouldn't have been involved in, and so maybe the divorce is their fault. There are also people here who have been involved, I'm sure, in fornication or maybe even committed adultery inside your marriage vows. And my point here this morning is not to bring any of that up and drudge it up and rehash old memories and try and open up old wounds with anybody here. We understand those things are sin. We understand they bring guilt, they bring shame, they destroy marriages, they destroy families, they destroy lives, all of those things. Those are horrible sins as they are. But I would be the first one to say to any Christian, no matter what your marital past is and no matter what your moral past is, Those sins are on the cross, and they're dealt with. And once you have dealt with those before the Lord, and you've been forgiven of those things, you need to come to a point as a believer where you say, that was my old self. That has been dealt with. It has been done. It is out of the way. It is no longer. That's the old me. And you turn and you walk on with it. There's no health and there's no spiritual uh, benefit to dragging through things and drudging them up and living in light of them constantly forever. That's not the point here. The point here is to show how Jesus, with this woman and this particular sin, pointed it out to her. This was not this woman's only sin. This was her besetting sin. This was not even this woman's worst sin. This sin that Jesus is highlighting for her is simply the sin, I believe, that weighed most heavily upon her conscience that was most evident to her and most evident to everybody else. What was the worst sin that this woman had ever committed? It wasn't the five husbands, wasn't the five divorces, and it wasn't living in fornication with another man. The worst sin that this woman had ever committed was the failure to love God with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment of her life. Her idolatry and her rebellion and her failure to honor God, that was her worst sin. So this is not her worst sin. This is not her only sin. This is just the one that Jesus knew would do the job of bringing about conviction and creating the thirst inside of her for eternal life. So she says to him, he says to her, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. All right. Husband you don't have. Five of them. Five of them you've had. And the one you now have is not your own. And look at her response, verse 19. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> you think? Do you think? That seems minimally minimally observant, is it not? I mean, that seems like the, the bare minimum that you could conclude from such an encounter. I would love to be a fly inside on a wall inside of her head. When he said to her, you're right, five husbands, your husband you haven't had, five of them you've had, and now you're living with a man in immorality, and he's not your husband. I would love to know what was going on in her mind, because I can imagine what was going on in my mind. Who is this guy? How did he know that? Have I seen him here before? Have we met? Did we go to school together? Did you interview somebody in Sychar? Did you meet somebody else at the well? How did you gain that information? Is it written on the t-shirt that I'm wearing? Am I on candid camera? That's what I'd be thinking. But she says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. A prophet was somebody who spoke for God, represented God to men. She is able to see here that with this type of insight and omniscience, that the person she is standing in front of is a prophet. 
Now, to you and I, this seems minimally observant, as if this is the, the least that she could conceive. It seems that way, listen, until you hear her statement with first century Jewish or Samaritan ears. Now, let me put you in the mindset of a first century Jew and Samaritan, and you will begin to see the, the light in which she makes this statement, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. There, were, there was a division between Jews and Samaritans. We've already covered that. Ethically, uh, nationally, culturally, these distinctions between Jews and Samaritans. They were on opposite sides of this table, as it were. There was also a religious divide between Jews and Samaritans. We're going to get into this in more detail in verses 20 and following, where they began to discuss the worship of the Jews versus the worship of the Samaritans, spirit versus truth, and all of this. But let me tell you a little bit about Samaritan worship and, and religion. The Jews accepted as part of their canon the 39 books of the Old Testament. Now, by canon, I mean C-A-N-O-N, not two N's. So we're not talking about a big thing that shoots big lead balls. But by canon, we mean a rule or a standard. And that's what the word canon means. The canon of Scripture is the standard or the rule, the accepted, inspired, authoritative books. The Jews looked at the Old Testament and they said, we got 39 of them. They happen to be the same 39 that you and I observed, Genesis through Malachi, No Jews in Jesus' day before or after. None of the apostles in Jesus did not accept the Apocrypha, the books written between the Old and the New Testament, as inspired scripture. They accepted 39 books, the same 39 books that we accept today as inspired scripture. The Jews, that is Jesus and all of them down in Judea in the south, had 39 books in their canon. The Samaritans had five. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They They only believed in those first five books written by Moses. They accepted that as scripture and rejected all of the other Jewish books. They rejected the Psalms and all of the prophets. So consequently, in a Samaritan's mind, there were only two prophets. Moses and somebody that Moses wrote about. Do you know in your mind who it is that Moses wrote about? The prophet that Moses wrote about is in Deuteronomy chapter 18, when the Lord said to Moses, I will rise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now, who was Moses speaking of? Moses was speaking of the Messiah. All the Jews believed that the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18 was this prophet, this Messiah, that the Lord would raise up, just like Moses, and put God's words in his mouth and require of anybody that they obey the words of this prophet. Samaritans and Jews agreed that Deuteronomy 18, those words prophesying of a prophet, spoke of the Messiah. So when a woman from Samaria says, I perceive that you are a prophet, do you now see the significance of what she said? What is she admitting? In her mind, already, she is speculating, could this be the Messiah? She is willing to admit one of two things. Either her view of prophets and all the Jewish prophets is wrong, in which case, He is a Jewish prophet, but not the Messiah, which means all of her religion is wrong. Or she is willing to concede he is the one spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Now, had any Jew said to this to Jesus, I perceive that you are a prophet. All a Jew would have been acknowledging to Jesus was that he was on par with Isaiah and Daniel, John the Baptist, as a peer. But for this woman to say, I perceive that you are a prophet from a Samaritan mouth, That is already speculation. Sir, could you be the Messiah? Which is why I believe in verse 26, when Jesus reveals to her that he is the Messiah, she believes it and accepts it and trusts it just like that. Why did she do that? Because already back here in this point of the conversation, her mind is thinking this. How is it that this man knows my moral history? 
how does he know everything about me? It was the expectation of those days that a prophet would have insight into people's minds and their hearts and their lives, a supernatural insight, and Jesus has fulfilled that by giving to her her marital history. So when she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, she is already confessing to Jesus. Hmm, messianic. See, that has messianic overtones to him, about him, because it comes from a Samaritan. And they would only acknowledge two prophets, Moses and the Messiah. She acknowledged Moses. To say he was a prophet puts him over here in the Messiah camp. She's already thinking that direction. There's a second import to her confession, I perceive that you are a prophet. You know what that means? It's confession. You're right. You've got five husbands. The one you're living with now is not your own. Does she deny it? She doesn't deny it. What does she say to him? You're right. You're a prophet. You have to be to know that kind of information. You've got to be a prophet. She is acknowledging before him that what he knows about her is true. Now, earlier when she said, I have no husband. See, that was a dodge. It was avoiding. She didn't want to talk about it. But now when Jesus reveals to her her sin and who, and this knowledge that he has of her, suddenly she is now confessing it. Yeah, you're right. I am. This woman had to get to the point where she was willing to acknowledge her sin, acknowledge her guilt, acknowledge her condemnation, acknowledge her violation of God's law, acknowledge her standing before holy God before she is able, ever able to get to the point of needing and thirsting for living water, which Jesus has already offered her. And her confession in verse 19 is, is, is just that. It's a confession. No more running. You're absolutely right. You know me. Now, by the way, Jesus knows you as well. His ability to read your thoughts and your life and your, your history and your past and your future and your intents and your motives and your actions didn't end when he went to heaven and he ascended to heaven. That piercing omniscience of Jesus Christ toward each one of us, that he knows what we think and he knows what we watch and he knows what you're viewing on the computer screen and he knows what you're reading and he knows what you're listening to and he knows what's going on in the theater of your brain and he knows all of your past and your history, that is either a terrifying thought or is a very comforting thought. For the believer who's willing to live in light of that and thank God for it and trust in it, it is a very comforting thought. It's very comforting that he knows me that deeply, that intimately, and that even though he knows me like that, he's forgiven me for all of that. And he calls me his son. And he's justified me, and he's sanctifying me, and he's glorified me, and he will take me to heaven to be with him. That's very comforting. Even the fact that he knows all of my history. He's still willing to accept me on those terms, on his terms, and make me his son. But for somebody who hates that thought, that an omniscient God knows their every thought and their every deed, and what goes on in the theater of their mind, it's a very terrifying thought, isn't it? To know that he's up there and he knows you like that? You run from that? You ought to be terrified of that. You ought to be terrified of it. Now, what has Jesus done with the woman at the well? All he's done is open up one commandment. Just one. I shall not commit adultery. That's the subject of this conversation. What has Jesus been trying to do with her? Use the commandment to create in her a thirst for the living water that he offers. I said at the beginning, she's not going to come to living water or for living water until she feels her thirst. And this, my friends, by the way, is exactly what the Spirit of God does to us. What is it that takes a sinner who is apathetic towards spiritual things, and turns them into somebody who is passionate about spiritual things? What is it that takes a sinner who is totally unconcerned with the the situation and the condition of their soul and their standing before God and makes them all of a sudden alarmed and alerted to the fact that they stand condemned and they need a Savior? What takes somebody who has no idea that they are dead and thirsty and makes them suddenly cry out for life and living water? What is it that does that? 
Or I should say, who is it that does that? That's the Spirit of God that does that. That's the work of the Spirit of God. In regeneration, the Spirit of God creates in us first a thirst for living water. A thirst for living water. There was a time when you knew nothing of your deadness and nothing of your sin. Then there was a time when suddenly you realized, if you're a believer, I am thirsty. I need forgiveness. I need justification. What caused the change? It was the Spirit of God drawing you to Himself. It was the Spirit of God creating that thirst in you, in your dead, parched soul, and making you to feel the burning intensity of your need so that you would come, quite of your own will, but all the while drawn by the Spirit of God to fulfill that thirst and to fulfill that longing. He makes us to thirst so that we thirst after Him. And then with that thirst, coupled with the Word of God, the Spirit of God presents to us the Savior, and we come. We come because we're thirsty. How do we become thirsty? We were made to feel our thirst. How are we made to feel our thirst? By recognizing that we are sinners. How are we made to recognize that we are sinners? When we see ourselves in the light of God's law. That is what the Spirit of God does. Create in the sinner a thirst, first of all, for forgiveness and life. And then they will thirst after it. But that is the work of the Spirit of God. And we do that in conjunction with Him. And we magnify the precious grace of Christ for His work and the Spirit's work in doing that in our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the clarity of it and the conviction of it. We thank You that these things are clear to us. Help us to appropriate these graces and these things that we are learning and sharing Christ with others. Help us to first take the time to convince the sinner of their need before we offer to them the solution or the cure. And we pray, O oh God, that you would present to us opportunities to do this and bring across our paths people who need the gospel of Christ and give us the boldness to share with them the living water that you have made known to us. May we be conduits through which those blessings of salvation might flow to others. And may you make us faithful in this task and give us joy in the execution of this duty and help us to find our satisfaction and fulfillment in these things in Christ and Christ alone. We praise you for your grace and thank you that you created that thirst in us, made us to see our deadness and our thirst and our hunger for spiritual things and our desperate need as those condemned and wicked and depraved before a holy God. And we thank you that you have then given to us not only forgiveness, but the righteousness which is to be found in Christ and Christ alone. We praise you in his mighty and glorious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.